I want to tell you something, and that is operating a food company has been one of the most challenging endeavors of my life. From innovating products that we want to land at the intersection of taste and nutrition, to wrestling with supply chain issues and managing inventory, I have had more sleepless nights in the past three years than I have in the last 30, including the 12 when I was a firefighter. But no one tells you that food is hard. But I also want to say it's because of each of you that we continue to get in the trenches day after day after day. It's in our core values to keep at it, knowing that we are filling a giant void in the market with products that you can't find anywhere else. And this makes it easier for us to climb out of bed each day. I want to thank you for your patience. We are anxiously awaiting the return of our organic pancake and waffle mixes. And we're excited to announce that our Plant Strong milks will be available online later this week, followed soon thereafter by the return of our exciting new burger mixes. Our goal is to be your reliable and trustworthy partner for all things Plant Strong, allowing you to stock up on healthy meals that you can make and enjoy in minutes while still managing your busy lives. I appreciate each and every one of you and want you to know that the effort will be worth it once more brands start to care about the integrity of the nutrition that they're putting into their products. Thank you so much for your support and please stay tuned for exciting updates at planstrong.com. Hello, Plan Strong Pod Squad. With Thanksgiving right around the corner, I don't want any one of you to be left in the lurch when it comes to bringing some sort of incredible holiday recipes to either Thanksgiving or Christmas. So we have created the Plan Strong Holiday Guidebook. If you guys don't have a copy, you definitely want to get one. It's free. It rocks. It's incredible. Some of the recipes in this guidebook are cranberry salsa, holiday stuffing, mommy's mushroom gravy, um, cauliflower pot roast, a pumpkin and white bean soup with roasted Brussels sprouts. We also have a sweet, holy deliciousness soup. We've got a crazy lineup of desserts, berry crumble cookies, guilt-free apple crisps, reindeer crunch cookies, and plant-strong pumpkin pie. So check it out. Simply visit our show notes in today's episode to download your free holiday guide today. Yeah. Part of why this drug is so popular is because it is incredibly good at what it does. This drug mm. is magic, right? It shuts down that proton potassium ATPase, that proton pump, and it creates quite frankly, a medical condition called achlorhydria, meaning no stomach acid. So when you don't have stomach acid, yeah, you can eat that big meal late at night and there's no acid coming up, but guess what? You've profoundly interfered with digestion. Yeah. Having yeah. stomach acid, it's digestion 101. I mean, that is the ideal pH for the enzymes to work, 
for the pancreas to release its lipase and amylase for, you know, the gall, for everything, for absorption of fat soluble vitamins like A, D, E, and K. So when you block stomach acid, you really interfere with digestion. You interfere with assimilation and absorption of nutrients. And that's why these drugs long-term are associated with so many problems with increased fractures and kidney problems and cognitive problems. I'm Rip Esselstyn, and welcome to the Plant Strong Podcast. The mission at Plant Strong is to further the advancement of all things within the plant-based movement. We advocate for the scientifically proven benefits of plant-based living and envision a world that universally understands, promotes, and prescribes plants as a solution to empowering your health, enhancing your performance, restoring the environment, and becoming better guardians to the animals we share this planet with. We welcome you wherever you are on your Plan Strong journey, and I hope that you enjoy the show. Okay, my Brockstar audience, we're going to start the show today with a pop quiz. So first, how many of you take meds for acid reflux and indigestion? Okay, next... How many of you are on antibiotics or birth control? How many of you love to put artificial sweeteners in your coffee? And lastly, how many of you drink alcohol on a regular basis? Now, my bet is that most of us raised our hands for one or more of these questions. And here's the thing. Modern medicine is wonderful and it can be very powerful. And as most of you know, I'm the son of a doctor, and I understand how medicine provides tons of tools and innovations that can help people live better and in many circumstances survive. But what I want you to be aware of is that multiple recent studies are showing that these antibiotics and medicines to specifically treat acid reflux and heartburn actually reduce the amount of stomach acid in our guts, wreaking havoc on our gut microbiomes, thereby increasing the likelihood of us getting hit and hit hard by viruses like COVID-19. So what in the world can we do to prevent this? Enter gastroenterologist, Dr. Robin Shutkan, and she is back with her latest book, The Antiviral Gut, tackling pathogens from the inside out. And that is exactly what we do today. Why are some people more susceptible to contracting these new viruses? And what practices can we do during our everyday lives to minimize that risk and boost our immunity? Dr. Shutkan is a powerhouse of research and information in this conversation And we start at the top with the basics, like what exactly is the gut and the digestive tract? Why do so many of us suffer from something called dysbiosis, which is a term that describes a damaged gut microbiome? And why are some of these commonly prescribed meds so bad for our gut lining? And once we learn the why, then we can take action steps And that is what we do in the second half of this interview. Dr. Shutkan shares her top 10 guidelines to boost your defenses and overall health. So 
the first half of this conversation is really more of an education, and the second half is actionable. It's a jam-packed session of research and science, but also of, of hope. Our bodies heal at an enormously rapid rate, providing we give it the assistance that it needs. And according to Dr. Shutkan, those key elements include dirt, sweat, and a whole lot of vegetables. It's time for us to start rolling around and making it happen. Enjoy. Hey, everybody. I am here today with Dr. Robin Shutkan. And boy, oh boy, am I excited to have Robin on the show today. I don't know how many of you know Robin. Actually, you know, Robin, you were on the first season of the, the Plant Strong podcast because you came to Plant Stock 2019 in Black Mountain. And while you were there, we recorded that lecture that you gave. And we actually re-recorded that as a podcast. But this is this will be my first time actually, you know, having a, a really lively conversation with you. So this is going to be great. Um, so you are as my sister Jane said, uh, on the back, right, when she endorsed uh, the antiviral gut, she referred to you as the fairy godmother of the microbiome, which I think is, is so perfect. And you've got this new book, The Antiviral Gut, Tackling Pathogens from the Inside Out, that I really want to unpack with you today, and I look forward to it. Um, you well, cool I just want to say I, I am so cool with that and all things Esselstein I am down yeah. with. I loved that experience at Plantstock. And I think I mentioned this to you that after that conference in Asheville, yeah. North Carolina, and after, you know, they debuted Game Changers at that uh, that year in 2019, before it came out on Netflix and all the amazing people who spoke, I think I told you the story that my husband, we left, we had to come back to pick our kid up from camp and we um, were flying out of Charlotte and he was not plant-based at the time. He ordered a porterhouse, foie gras, ate it and he was like, okay, that's it, I'm done. And then he became plant-based after that and his cardiologist fired him and was like, okay, so you have a calcium score of zero. You're, <laughs> you're beating the Georgetown basketball team on the stress test and um, don't come back because you're basically, you know, his cholesterol dropped from like 240 to the 160s. And here's the thing, my husband, when I married him and even before when I, when I met him over 20 years ago, he was so worried about heart disease because his father had had his first cardiac event in mm. his 50s and um, had several more heart attacks and died in his 70s from a cardiac event. And I would say to him, look, you're super fit. You know, you run trails. You're not diabetic. You're not a smoker. You're not hypertensive. You're not sedentary. The only risk factor you have is your family history. But he was still like always wanting to check his lipid profile. And he went plant-based, and I have to tell you, he is not 100% vegan. He will eat some animal protein from time to time, but he, I'd say he's 99%. Yeah. And um, if he does, like if it's a holiday time and he eats some turkey or something, he always says, oh, I just can't wait to like get back to my diet, which is basically his big bowl of oatmeal in the morning with a ton of different plants his huge salad at lunch, and then his sauteed greens and brown rice and more salad in the evening. And so he just feels fantastic. I mean, there's like, there's no convincing him that this is the way to eat. Like he 
just feels so great. And I don't think he's worried about, you know, something that he literally used to get up in the morning with in the back of his mind about the heart disease is just, um, it's just not there anymore. So I, you know, in addition to us having a great time, I want to really thank you for that because it was transformative for him. Yeah. Well, we loved having you. And as I think you said, you know, these are your kind of people. And, uh, it was, it was truly, um, it was a great weekend. You're in Washington, D.C. right now, right? That's right. Do the cherry blossoms only blossom in the spring? Is that how that works? No, we kind of have a second blooming in the fall, too. And I'll tell you what's really interesting about the cherry blossoms. So D.C. is a beautiful city, and I'm very proud to live in Washington. I've lived here 25 years, which is the longest I've lived anywhere, and I consider myself Washingtonian. But cherry blossoms are not original to D.C. As you know, they were a gift from the Japanese government. And as a result of all this beautiful foliage, including the cherry blossoms, D.C. is also the allergy capital of the U.S. because a lot of the plants, like the cherry blossoms, are not indigenous to the area. And so people tend to develop antibodies to them. So they are amazing to look at, but, you know, a whole lot of sneezing going on around here with, um, with the cherry blossoms. And, you know, of course, everything for me, I'm like a hammer, everything points to the gut, right? The really yes, interesting yes. connection between seasonal allergies and what's going on in your gut in terms of your microbiome, the integrity of your gut lining, et cetera, something that, you know, I have to say 25 years ago when I moved here, I didn't really think about um, the whole sort of gut allergy connection. But yeah, it's a beautiful city. The cherry blossoms, primarily the spring, but again, there is kind of like a second blooming and DC is just amazing right now in the fall with the foliage. I was showing you, spinning my camera yeah, around yeah. to show you the amazing, we live right on the edge of Rock Creek Park, the amazing, amazing forest, but just all the beautiful parks and green areas. It's, it's amazing. I know whenever I'm there, I, I always adore it. There is, it, it's got a certain energy and buzz about it for sure. Before we, before we dive into the antiviral gut, I want to ask you a couple questions. When we were at Black Mountain, I think you mentioned you were getting ready to do a triathlon or something like that. Did you ever do that? Yeah, I was getting ready to do a half Ironman, the Eagle Man in Chesapeake, Maryland. And then I herniated three discs in my cervical spine. Um, you know, I got to mm. assume it was a tri bike. I've been fitted and everything for it. But um, so I was, I was not able to do that, unfortunately. And I've I mostly do. I'm mostly a runner. I can swim. I'm slow. I don't love the bike, Rick. But I have to tell you, and you know, the bike is a majority of the time, but I can, uh, I can run for sure. Getting ready to do the Philly half marathon in, um, I guess, in mid-November. And uh, my full marathon days may be behind me. I don't know. See how the, the knees hold up. But I still love just to get out there and run far yeah. and slowly. Well, I also saw in in researching you that you oh, also there. like you like yoga. You still yes. doing yoga? Oh, all the time. Yeah, I go mm. to the my yoga home here in DC is called Down Dog Yoga. It's a great studio. And what's been fantastic is our daughter, seventeen year old, has been coming. I think it's maybe the stress of senior year, but she normally is somebody. She does not love the heat. She spent a semester up in Vermont in high school, loved it, and. Um, down dog yoga is heated vinyasa flow. So it's not Ooh. as hot as, you know, what you think of hot yoga as Bikram, but it's a, you know, it's a gentle 99 
degrees, sometimes gets up to about 102. And it's a super athletic form of yoga, the vinyasa flow, Baptiste style for, for those who are interested. Yeah, so I do try and make it there two or three times a week. And I love going at this time of year as it's going getting colder. I mean, you know, heated yoga in August in DC is a much harder sell, but this is a great time as it's kind of getting crisp outside. Yeah. I, I think I just told, <clears throat> mentioned to you, I just got done doing a six day retreat in Sedona, Arizona, and we have yoga every morning. I did yoga three times a week in the 1990s. And I just loved how I felt. I got away from it. Life got busy, but I did it every morning. I can't believe how fantastic my body feels after just kind of giving it that gift of stretching and strengthening. And, and then also just the, um, the, the mental kind of unpacking that happens when you, when you do that yoga practice. So absolutely, absolutely. It's so great. <laughs> it is. And you also, you're a, do you, you play squash? Is that, do you I still do squash? squash? Yeah. You know, I, cause that's such a like un, unpopular sport. It, it's popular in the Commonwealth where I hail from. So I was born in Jamaica, lived there till I was 14. And then my family moved to the Bahamas and I was in school there for a little bit, but I also spent some time in high school in France and Spain, and then came to the U S at 17 for college. And I played squash in college. I was, you know, bottom of the team. I will say we had a really good team. Um, and and I, my whole family played. My 87-year-old dad and my 82-year-old mom. I mean, my dad still plays tennis and squash. So my sister played in college. I played squash. My brother was a tennis player. So my whole family plays racket sports. But here's the thing. It wasn't really popular back then when I was in college mm -hmm. in the 80s at all. I mean, people would see me and be like, what is that, a badminton racket? Um, but squash in areas where you have like a big expatriate community, like in yeah. D.C., squash is big. So the squash club I go to, Squash on Fire, we've got people from Pakistan and Egypt and India and Australia and the U.K. and Canada and all over Argentina. So members of the – it's sort of, you know, because it's a sport that originated yeah. in England, they kind of spread to the colonies. So, so it's a pretty – it's like a little U.N. of squash players – yeah. Yeah. Squashes. And now pickleball, yeah. right? Everybody's playing pickleball, which <laughs> it's a phenomenon. Yeah. It is crazy. Well, the, the reason squash really caught my eye is my last two years of high school, I went to a boarding school called Mercersburg Academy. It's about an hour and a half from DC. Great squash team. Great squash yeah. team. So yeah. I knew a lot of the squash players. I was a swimmer, but I played a fair amount and just grew to love and really respect and admire the, the, the sport. It's really cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. Let's, let's dive into your new book. You, you cool with that? <laughs> okay. Oh yeah. I think <laughs> so, I have some time yeah. to talk about the new book. Uh, okay. So first let me say there is, I can't believe how much buzz there is right now around the microbiome. I mean, it is like everywhere I turn, it's like gut health, microbiome, this microbiome, that, you know, I've had, Dr. Will Bolshewitz uh, and Dr. Alan Desmond on the Plant Strong podcast, gastroenterologists. They're both great. Yeah. yeah. We're a small club, gastroenterologists yeah. who like really believe in food as medicine, but Will and Alan are both fantastic. Yeah. But you know, you've written several other books, Gut Bliss, you've written The Microbiome Solution, The Bloat Cure. So tell me this, and you know, I think it's pretty apparent, but why now? Why the antiviral gut? I'll it's tell good. you, Rip, I, I thought I was done 
with book writing, with Gupless was 2013, Microbiome Solution was 2015, Bloat Care was 2016. And I was like, you know, I kind of feel like I've said what I, what I have to say about digestive health. And then came the pandemic. And then came a series of really interesting articles. So the first one was summer 2020. This was a population-based study where they looked at about 53,000 patients. And they asked a simple question. The simple question was, in people taking acid blockers, a specific type of acid blocker called a proton pump inhibitor, mm. are people who are taking proton pump inhibitors more likely to get COVID? And the answer wasn't just yes. It was a resounding yes. It was to the tune of, if you're taking a proton pump inhibitor once a day, you're twice as likely to test positive. And if you're taking a proton pump inhibitor twice a day, three to fourfold increased risk. Now, this didn't really surprise me as a gastroenterologist because I know that blocking stomach acid means that you have removed one of your really important host defenses, which is the ability of stomach acid to unravel viral protein and stop a virus from infecting cells. And we've seen in the GI world, we've seen increased risk of other viral infections, of rotavirus, of norovirus, even bacterial infections like Clostridium difficile and Campylobacter. So any of these, what we call enteric infections that affect the gut, we know that if you don't have stomach acid, you're at high risk. Not just more likely to get infected, but more likely to have more severe symptoms. So it didn't really surprise me, but I, I asked my husband, who is not in medicine, who, as you know, Rip, is in the super secret spy world, or, or used to be, now he's cybersecurity, but used to do counterterrorism, counterintelligence. So he's not in the medical world. And you know he listens to me buzzing about this stuff. But I said to him, I said, hey, Eric, you know that if you don't have stomach acid because you're, you know, you're taking Nexium or one of these PPIs, that you're more likely to get COVID, right? And he looked at me and he was like, what? He was like, no, I don't know that. Like, how does that work? And I explained, I said, because stomach acid, you know, often the virus gets in through the mouth, you ingest it, and the stomach acid unravels a viral protein, renders the virus inactive. Brilliant. Like, no, I, I didn't know that. And then I asked a couple of my colleagues, I asked a dermatology colleague and a friend in internal medicine. And they were also like, no, we didn't know that. And then Rip, I asked one of my GI colleagues and he didn't know that. And I was like, wow. okay, like people need to know this. So then I chatted with my book agent who's, who I've done all the books with. And he was like, yeah, you should write an editorial. Like let's write a piece for the Atlantic or HuffPo or something and get that information out there. So I was thinking about that. And then another article came out a few months later and this article, same, essentially the same study done in China and also in the US, where they looked at what the most accurate predictor of outcome from COVID was in hospitalized patients. So they are like, okay, and people are hospitalized with COVID. What is going to tell us with the most precision whether somebody's likely to have respiratory distress, be on a ventilator, be in the ICU, or die? And the test that told us that with 92% accuracy was simple analysis of the microbiome, looking at a schmear of stool, more accurate than looking at comorbidities like heart disease, lung disease, et cetera, age, gender, even inflammatory markers that you would do in the lab, like C-reactive protein, et cetera, more accurate than all of those things combined. And what they found- Isn't that know, crazy? That's isn't crazy. crazy, right? A piece of stool. And what they found, I know it won't surprise you as an avid advocate for plants, 
But it's still so, when you think about what is encapsulated in the microbiome, everything about you, right? Where you were born, how you were born, what you've eaten, the medications you've taken, stress in your life. When you think about it that way, and you remember that your microbiome is a more unique identifier of you than your own DNA, then it starts to make sense. But the simple thing they found was that people who had high levels of my favorite bacteria, Fecalobacteria prosnitzii, F. Uh -huh. prosnitzii to its Rolls friends. off the tongue. <laughs> Love it. How do you get high levels of F. prosnitzii? By eating lots of plant fiber. And high levels of F. prosnitzii were very clearly correlated with better outcome and low levels with worse. And again, when you look at the central role of diet, high fiber diet, bacteria metabolize the fiber to short-chain fatty acids, short-chain fatty acids guide and modulate that immune response, setting it to the just right level, and also maintaining the lining of the gut, keeping viruses out of your body. Because, you know, how does this stuff get in to wreak havoc? It often gets in, it penetrates that gut lining. And they found that high levels of another bacteria, a not so good one, Enterococcus faecalis, that is associated with post-op infections and that can penetrate the gut lining, high levels of that bacteria were associated with a worse outcome. So, you know, in, in my practice, I, you know, will see patients from all over and they'll come in and I'm sitting there and I'm like, how do I make eat more vegetables sound really sexy and like it's worth the visit from, you know, Maine or Morocco or wherever this person has come from, right? To, to give them like as my, they've come and they've come for, you know, they want the answer and the answer is eat more vegetables. I mean, that's not the only answer, of course, yeah. right? But that yeah. is so often such a huge part of addressing what's going on in the gut, whether you're dealing with somebody who has inflammation, like a serious autoimmune disease, like Crohn's and ulcerative colitis, and you have to be, you have to be innovative in how to get that fiber into them because a the colon is really inflamed, or you're dealing with somebody who has colon cancer and is worried about recurrence, or you're worried about you're dealing with somebody who has reflux or diverticulitis and frequent episodes or whatever it is, you know, so much of what helps the gut stay healthy is maintaining these high levels of plant foods that result in high levels of these post-metabolite short-chain fatty acids. And nowhere is that more true than when we look at that gut immune relationship. And so, you know, we have like fantastic things in our arsenal of, of medical tools, right? It's fantastic that we do have ICUs and ventilators and monoclonal antibodies and vaccines and all of this stuff is incredible. But we also don't want to forget about these important host defenses like stomach acid, like our gut lining, like our gut microbiome, and what a pivotal role they play. I mean, prognostically, we see that in all these studies. You know, we see the importance of having intact host defenses. So for my very long answer to your really good question, Rip, I thought I was done. And then the pandemic happened. And I realized that there was great public health messaging around social distancing, hand washing vaccines. But there really was no messaging around what can you do? You know, what can the individual do? And of course, do all of those things, right? That are that all the public health guidelines certainly recommend following them. But there are so many additional things you can do to improve host health, which is as important as the potency of the pathogen you're facing. If you are an unhealthy host and you have a compromised gut, which is going to compromise your immune response, chances are you're not going to do as well. And there are lots of things that you can do and, and even on doing, because one of the 
one of the things that I see in my medical practice, and it's very much reflected in this book, is that people think the answer is, okay, tell me what pill to take, tell me what supplement to take. And, you know, there, there is a role for that, right? There are certainly medications, depending on if you have an illness, that can be helpful. But so often when we're talking about host defenses and optimizing them, so often what we're really talking about is undoing something that somebody's doing that is potentially causing a problem, right? So thinking more judiciously about the antibiotics that are wiping out your microbiome, thinking more judiciously about the ibuprofen that is potentially making holes in your gut lining and making it more permeable, and really you know, thinking more carefully about how much fiber you're eating, how much water you're drinking, all of these things. So it's, it's less about you know, going out and finding like this sort of magic potion and more about understanding how these defenses work and what you can do to optimize them and what you, can, what you should not do to sabotage them. I want to dive into a lot of what you just said in more detail, but before we do, so I'm going to go back to the very, very beginning, how you started this with PPIs, right? And how they disrupt the stomach acid and, and the unraveling of that, that virus. What percentage of Americans do you think are on PPIs? Well, it used to be, they used to be the third most commonly prescribed drugs. I think, I think Viagra booted them from that lofty position several years ago. But these are drugs that um, the CDC estimates that maybe half of these prescriptions are unnecessary. And in older people who are also more prone to poor outcomes because they're generally mounting a less immu robust immune response. In older people, there's a British study that says 80% of the older people taking PPIs are taking them unnecessarily. So if we think about what the actual indications are for a proton pump inhibitor, it is that you have an ulcer and that you're trying to heal. And that's typically an eight week indication. It's not an eight month, mm -hmm. it's not an eight year as we see people taking them. So it's a pretty finite indication. People who have very refractory reflux, who have failed diet and lifestyle. So this is after you've you know done all the things. You've raised the level of your bed. You've cut down on the caffeine and the alcohol. You've cut down on the fat in your diet. You're eating earlier meals, smaller meals. You've done all of that, and you still have really refractory reflux. Um, that is a small group. People who have a pre-malignant condition of the in the esophagus called Barrett's esophagus, and what we call long segment Barrett's, which means that a significant amount of their esophageal mucosa has been replaced by these potentially precancerous cells. That's a pretty small group. But here's the thing, Rip. People think, as a result of the marketing, that they need to take a proton pump inhibitor because their stomach is overproducing acid. Mm. And that is totally incorrect. There is a condition called Zollinger-Ellison syndrome that is a rare condition, about one in a million people, which means about, what, 350 people in the U.S. have, yeah. have this, right, where we're actually overproducing acid. And Zollinger-Ellison is a clear indication for a proton pump inhibitor. But the vast majority of people who have reflux symptoms have inappropriate opening of that valve, that lower esophageal sphincter. And why is it opening inappropriately? Because they're overfilling their stomach or they're eating late at night when the stomach contractility, stomach has a bedtime. Mm. So once it gets dark, that contractility comes to a standstill. And if that's when you're eating your large meal and then lying down when you don't have gravity helping move things through, you're gonna overwhelm that sphincter. If you're having a lot of coffee, you're gonna overwhelm that sphincter. Alcohol, even chocolate, I hate to, 
right, to break mm -hmm. it to people mm -hmm. can do that. But, you know, when we look at reflux and who's having reflux, the dietary contributions are huge. And if we can get people to work on that, it's mean you have to eliminate everything, right? But cut down, have your large meal earlier, things like that. We can eliminate the need for this drug in a lot of people. And part of why this drug is so popular is because it is incredibly good at what it does. This drug mm. is magic, right? It shuts down that proton potassium ATPase, that proton pump, and it creates quite frankly, a medical condition called achlorhydria, meaning no stomach acid. So when you don't have stomach acid, yeah, you can eat that big meal late at night and there's no acid coming up. But guess what? You've profoundly interfered with digestion. Yeah. Having yeah. stomach acid, it's digestion 101. I mean, that is the ideal pH for the enzymes to work, for the pancreas to release its lipase and amylase, for you know the gut, for everything, for absorption of fat-soluble vitamins like A, D, E, and K. So when you block stomach acid, you really interfere with digestion. You interfere with assimilation and absorption of nutrients. And that's why these drugs long-term are associated with so many problems with increased fractures and kidney problems and cognitive problems because you are interfering with the delivery of nutrients to these other organs. And then, of course, they also make you more susceptible to pathogens, bacterial and viruses. And they mess up your microbiome because right. instead of having acid up top and fewer bacteria there in the stomach and then less acid as you go down to the colon and more bacteria, they, they change that gradient. And now you don't have the acid in the stomach, you get overgrowth of bacteria there. So there was a study published in our one of our GI journals called Gut several years ago. And that study showed that people were taking long-term proton pump inhibitors. And I think, they, I think they define that as more than two months at a time, or it might've been four months, but people taking these drugs long-term had a microbiome that was all messed up. They were seeing oral anaerobes in the colon, and they basically concluded that long-term PPIs were as deleterious to the gut microbiome as long-term antibiotics, mm. which is pretty shocking, pretty shocking. You've mentioned Digestion 101. I would love for you to go back and let us know, give us a little review, the gut. What actually is the gut? It refers to, when we think about the digestive tract, we and first of all, I just love geeking out on this stuff. So thank you so much for giving me the opportunity. No, well, it's it's very apparent you, you are going to town. <laughs> like I love this. We do a little show and tell later, but no, in all seriousness. So the gut refers to this digestive superhighway, if you will, from your mouth to your anus. So if we take a little trip down there, we start with the mouth, and digestion occur, starts to occur before anything even lands in your mouth, because just the sight of your fantastic food on Instagram, Rip, for example, will get somebody salivating and that, you know, you start to get salivary enzymes start to get released in your mouth, even before by the sight, the sound, the smell, sometimes even the thought of the food. But so the food gets into the mouth, it travels down this tube called the esophagus and the esophagus stuff kind of travels down through these waves and then it travels through the lower esophageal sphincter, which is a valve between the esophagus and the stomach, gets into the stomach, and the stomach has different enzymes being released, pepsin, et cetera, gastrin. The food gets churned up into what we call chyme, C-H-Y-M-E, little particles. The chyme gets pushed down into the small intestine. Small intestine has three parts, duodenum, jejunum, and ileum. 
And in medical school, we remembered it as dogs jump in. That was our, yeah. don't ask me who came up with that. I think it was one of the ortho guys, but dogs jump in. So duodenum, first part that is connected to the stomach, middle part jejunum, not a ton happens there. Ilium, the last part, a lot happens there, like B12 gets absorbed, et cetera. So during that transit time through the small intestine, that's where a lot of the nutrient absorption happens. Things move through the lining, this highly selective kind of fishing net, permeable membrane that lines things. And then by the time the stuff, and then bile, of course, gets secreted, it's made in the liver, stored in the gallbladder, gets secreted to help. Bile is sort of like um, detergent for oil, right? Like if you have an oily plate and you wash it and you may not be able to, well, you wouldn't because you're not using oil in your cooking. But let's say there is some oil on the plate and you're washing it and you can't get the oil to dissolve, but you put the detergent on it and now all of a sudden it emulsifies the oil and you can get the oil off the plate. Well, bile helps to emulsify the fat so that they can get absorbed through the lining. So then now this stuff gets to the colon, which is also called the large intestine. And at this point, it's sort of this greenish liquid, this bilious liquid, because it has all this bile in it. And of course, it has dead bacteria, red blood cells, et cetera. And it gets to the colon. The colon, there's not really absorption of nutrients happening in the colon. The main thing that's happening in the colon is reabsorption of water back from this greenish liquid stuff through the lining of the colon. So that the end, you end up with this brown, nice chocolatey brown solid stool. So the mm. colon is really an organ where water gets reabsorbed. And that's why, you know, in some patients with ulcerative colitis who have their colons removed, they end up with more frequent and more liquid stool, but their nutrient absorption is intact because that's mostly happening upstream. Not, not suggesting that anybody should remove their colon, but what I'm saying here is that you can tolerate that more easily than if a lot of your small intestine is gone. But, you know, Rip, here is the most fascinating thing I think about all of this. And, you know, I graduated from med school in 1991. So I've been a gastroenterologist a long time. But I never thought about this until about 10 years ago. When food is in your GI tract, it is actually not in your body. It's in this hollow tube that runs from your mouth to your anus and kind of dissects your body. It's outside. It's your environment. Everything you swallow and ingest, all that food, uh, you know, whatever, the pollen, the viruses, the bacteria, all of it is in this hollow tunnel running through your body. And in order for it to get into your body, it yeah. has to get absorbed through that gut lining. That gut lining is one cell thick, mm. razor thin. And it is the only thing protecting you from the outside world. Wow. From, from, as I was telling somebody the other day, from the dare repellent I swallowed the other day when I picked some <laughs> greens from my, my dad lives a couple miles up the street and he grows this green indigenous to Jamaica and to Washington, apparently called Callaloo. And it, it's fantastic. It's like a cross between collards and spinach. And I picked some and I'm fond of not washing the stuff because I'm like, oh yeah, you know, Dirt's good for you. Well, yeah, dirt, but not dare repellent that he had inadvertently sprayed on it. So my gut lining protected me from this dare repellent stuff. So the point is, it is, it is really the, it's in contact with the environment. And your gut lining has to be, when it is intact, it serves as this permeable 
but highly selective membranes so that mm -hmm. it is keeping out the toxins, the viruses, the poorly digested food particles, the DARE repellent, and it is allowing the fully broken down nutrients to pass through and be assimilated and carried to the rest of the body. And similarly, it is allowing the cellular waste debris to be excreted into the gut. And so how do things get into our body? Often through a breach in this membrane, right? There's, mm -hmm. there's an increase in permeability and that's what non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs do. In addition to you know helping your torn MCL feel better, unfortunately the price for that is they are making these little holes. When they're big holes, we call them ulcers and we can see them with our endoscope but little tiny holes that increase the permeability of, of the gut membrane. Okay. You say so much, and I want to ask you so many questions. So first I'll say, you know, Dr. Clapper likes to say, we're not what we eat, we're what we absorb. All right. And it sounds like based upon what you said right yeah. there, you would probably would agree with that very much so. And I've never heard that explanation. It is basically a tube that runs through our body, yeah. but it's really the food. The food is... It's not inside us, so to speak. It's really outside of us. That's, that's a wild concept. It is, right? And here I am, a practicing yeah. gastroenterologist, and it, it took me you know, a couple of decades to get to that. And I'll tell you, to, to sort of add on to what he said, and he's absolutely right, it's what we are, what we absorb. If your gut microbiome is you know, really damaged, because these microbes are so involved with that absorption or assimilation process, even eating a high nutrient density diet, you may not be fully absorbing stuff. If you don't have stomach acid, again, even eating yeah. a high nutrient diet, it may not be absorbed. Damage gut lining. So you start to see how all these different pieces of the puzzle come together to result in you know, optimal health or suboptimal health, depending on, on what's going on in the gut. Yeah. You mentioned short chain fatty acids. It sounds like you're a huge fan of SCFAs, yes? I'm a huge fan of the food that leads to production of SCFAs. So, right. so I, I, love, I, love, yeah. I love for us to unwind, or I should yeah. say rewind, because I don't think many people, kind of including myself, really understand what are short-chain fatty acids, why are they so important, where do they originate from, and what do they feed? And you shouldn't feel that if you don't fully understand that, because yeah. I think most physicians don't fully understand that. So that's perfectly okay. So, you know, I would love to start with a couple of definitions. And the definitions I'd like to go over, and I apologize for people who know this, but is a concept of a pre, a pro, and a postbiotic. Mm. So let's start with the prebiotics. And by biotics, what we mean, we're talking about biota. We're really talking about bacteria, living organisms when we talk about biota. So prebiotics are the food that these organisms eat. And so that we're really talking about high fiber foods, right? And what we call MACS, M-A-C-S, microbiota accessible carbohydrates. So we're talking about things like quinoa and rice and oats and legumes and all of this great plant food. And we're also talking about foods high in inulin. So things like garlic and onions and leeks and scallion and oats. So, so, these, are all, these, these, so these are all considered prebiotic foods? Prebiotic foods. These are foods that are feeding our gut bacteria. Got it. Yep. The probiotics are the live bacteria themselves. And in common parlance, when we talk about probiotics, people think about a supplement, a, a 
probiotic that you're buying from the store, ordering off the internet and taking. But remember, it's the actual bacteria in our gut that we're trying to cultivate, right? We don't need to go and buy these bacteria off the shelf. We have trillions of them in our gut, but we're trying to selectively feed the ones like the F. prosnitzii that we want to proliferate. And the definition of a probiotic, the World Health Organization definition, it's really the second part of the definition that's really important. So the definition is, it is live bacteria that when ingested, confer a benefit to the host. And that's a tricky part because mm. you can ingest live bacteria, but there is often a big question mark about whether this is actually conferring a benefit to you as a host. Half the time, they're not surviving the stomach acid. Yeah. The stomach acid is activating them or you're just pooping them out or they're dying or there's just not enough to really cultivate and recolonize and repopulate in any meaningful way. But guess what? You have this incredible zoo inside you of existing organisms that if you just feed them, you can dramatically increase the population. So the prebiotic refer to the bacteria. And then what about a postbiotic? A postbiotic refers to the metabolites. That these are the products really that the bacteria make. Because we're, you know, I like to say we're animated by our microbes. We're like a hive and the microbes are the bees. So they're the ones making the honey and they are literally the ones synthesizing the vitamins, breaking down the food, training the immune system, turning genes on and off, growing new blood vessels. I mean, all of this mm. stuff, right, is that's who's doing it. And so, um, you know, again, so much of it depends on the complement of bacteria that, that you have in the gut. But to get back to the short chain fatty acids, we know that certain bacteria like F. prosnitzii are the ones that are primarily metabolizing that fiber and producing short chain fatty acids. And short chain fatty acids aren't the only postbiotic, the only important metabolite, but they are arguably the most important one or the most important one that we, that we know of to date. And the reason why is that the short chain fatty acids, the, the cells, the colonocytes, the cells lining the intestinal barrier, that epithelium, use the short chain fatty acids for energy. That's our energy source. The short chain fatty acids also guide the immune system to that Goldilocks level. We don't want, you know, people talk about boosting their immune system. And I have to remind people, we don't want a hyperactive immune system. That's called mm. autoimmune disease. Mm. When you have an immune system that's too active and now it's reacting to your own tissue, right? To your joints and your skin, et cetera. That's rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, et cetera. It can also cause allergies and seasonal allergies and you know, severe food allergies, et cetera. So that's an immune system that's kind of set too high. An immune system that's set too low means that it can't clear viruses, bacteria, other pathogens, or the internal cancer surveillance system isn't working because your immune system is also supposed to find those cells that are dividing improperly and weed them out. So now if you have an inactive or a underactive immune system, you're at risk for cancer infection, overactive immune system, you're at risk for autoimmune diseases yeah. and allergies. So the short chain fatty acids help guide your immune response to set it at just the right level. And we have lots of data and it's all in the book, lots of scientific data showing, lots of clinical data showing that high levels of short chain fatty acids are associated with this appropriate immune response. Now, Robin, here's here's the thing. All my research shows, shows me that about 94% of America's caloric consumption 
is coming from animal products and animal byproducts, processed, refined foods, and only about 6% is coming from whole plant-based foods. And you're saying that, correct me if I'm right here, you're saying that those short-chain fatty acids are the byproduct of fiber that are in whole plant-based foods, right? In so, that 6%, absolutely. It, yeah. So what yeah. happens What happens when you said the epithelium, which is the, the lining of the, of, the, of the gut, right? Mm-hmm. What happens when, if, if short-chain fatty acids are the energy source for that, what happens if you don't have uh, short-chain fatty acids? What, what, what does it do? Does it eat itself? Yeah, it, what does it do? It, it, well, absolutely. There's a, and you know that study that showed that people, they gave, this was a study in mice, and they gave the mice three diets. They gave them a high-fiber diet, a high-fiber diet alternating with a low-fiber diet, and a low fiber diet. And only the high fiber diet resulted in, so it's not just the health of the microbiome, it's also that mucus layer that protects mm. the intestine. Mm. And so the mice eating the low fiber diet, their intestinal lining, they started, was starting to be auto digested because you didn't have the fiber to help protect the epithelial lining. And even the alternate day chow that the, the mice got with the high fiber one day, low fiber the next day wasn't enough to really protect the lining. So you've, you know, again, without that intact lining, you are defenseless from the external world. And I don't know about you, but the external world is, um, you know, the external world is beautiful, but there are some threats in it that I would like to be protected from personally. So yeah, yeah. This stuff is, and you know, Rip, I think about this, right. And I, I am aware I live in the real world. It's hard. It is hard. People are, you know, to go and get the food and prepare it and all of that. And, you know, I took my, uh, I took my parents, my 87 year old dad and my 82 year old mom. My dad grew up on a farm on a sugarcane plantation. Parents grew his parents are Hindu, and um, they didn't eat beef or pork. And they, the the main cash crop was sugarcane, but they grew a wide array of vegetables. They ate, they raised goats, and they had mutton once a week. And the other six days of the week, it was plants. And, which they grew. And um, he's still, you know, he's a very basic eater. And his, his typical meal growing up was dal, which is typically made from split peas and yeah. rice and some kind of green like callaloo that I talked about, this cross between spinach and collards and uh, maybe some plantain. And so I took him to this new Wegmans in DC and not to, you know, not to hit on Wegman specifically. I mean, it's this huge, beautiful, shiny store with all this stuff in it. My dad walked, I took him for the first time there last Saturday and he walked around and he goes, my goodness, how could anybody not be fat in this country, right? How could anybody not be unhealthy? Now my dad is 87. He still weighs what he weighed in high school. Yeah. He still has the same haircut also, <laughs> the same crew cut, but you know, he, he, he just found it so overwhelming and that like anything you wanted, you know, here's a section with the pizza, the baked goods, the Chinese food. I mean, it's just all there. I mean, and yeah, there's a produce section, but by comparison, I mean, we, we all know that the produce section is shrinking while all the other stuff, I mean, you can just pick up anything you want and go home and eat it. Right. And this stuff is all full of fat and sugar and all this other stuff to make it taste good. And it seems easy. And so it is, it is increasingly harder because of the access, the immediate access. And of course, the pandemic was 
contributed to this. It made it so that we all could get the food right away on our doorstep. So increasing access to highly processed foods with very little plant matter in them. And it's it's just a tide of this. And it's, it's really hard to fight. And I, I understand, you know, people are busy and the stuff takes effort, et cetera. But until you recognize that how important this stuff is. And this isn't just a matter of taste buds and, well, I like this and so on, but this is a direct contributor to your health, to your resiliency, to, you know, we, uh, the book is not scary in any way, but I do mention some statistics that I think are important for people to know. And I mentioned them early on in the introduction. And one of those statistics is a study from Duke University from 2021, where they looked in a sort of mathematical model at the likelihood of a pandemic like this one we've just been through and to some extent are still going through to have happened. And they calculated that risk to be about 2% per year. So Rip, what that means is somebody born in 2020 would have had about a 40% chance of this happening by the time it did, right? We, If we look at the last 50 years, we see there are over 30 new viruses for which we have no real cure or or satisfying treatment, things like Ebola, SARS-CoV-2, HIV, hepatitis C, et cetera. These are all new viruses. And based on other things going on in the world, we know that the rate of these things happening is actually increasing. Yeah. And, and hopefully, you know, we'll be more prepared. But part of that preparedness, it is our public health messaging, our public health infrastructure to be able to test, et cetera, but is also how we care for ourselves and the decisions we make on a daily basis. And so, you know, I really want people to understand that direct link between what they are eating and their susceptibility to disease. And, uh, you know, we have incredible data supporting this. This isn't, this isn't some sort of religious, I want people to eat plants because, you know, this is just science at the end of the day. It is. And like, do you have any idea how many Americans have come down with COVID-19? I mean, I would think it's 80 or 90% of us at this point. Yeah, it's, it's, as you know, Rip, it's hard to know the exact number because there's, you know, a huge number who are asymptomatic, didn't test, yeah. et cetera. But it's the vast, vast, vast majority of the country for sure. Yeah. And the people, the people that are having a rough go of it that have gotten COVID and have to be hospitalized, put on a ventilator, have unfortunately perished from it. You know, you talk about, I think it might be, might have been chapter four, but how the gut is truly, it's our engine, right? And if we have some dysbiosis going on, which I'd love for you to talk about and all the things that cause it. We've already talked a little bit about it with the PPIs. You mentioned very in passing the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs, which I'd love for you to talk about more because I think so many Americans are popping ibuprofens and stuff like that without even thinking about it. Birth control pills, you know, um, prednisone, stuff like that. Because I, I look after reading your book, I'm just amazed at how most Americans, they're not giving their themselves a chance yeah. because everywhere you look, it's the, the wrong kinds of drugs that are damaging our gut, the wrong kind of food that is not allowing us to have, you know, a, a really powerful gut. Um, we're not moving. We're not outdoors. You blah, blah, blah. It goes on and on and on. 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. So I'd love to just dive right into dysbiosis, a term you used. And because dysbiosis is the most important term, I think, currently of, you know, the, the 21st century for mm -hmm. people to really understand. And what it's referring to is a disruption of the gut microbiome. And that can take many forms. It can take the form of a microbiome that's just not diverse enough, doesn't have enough of the different species that do different jobs to really protect you. It can be low richness of different species. It can be underrepresentation of some, overrepresentation of others. So there are lots of different forms, but it refers to a disrupted and a damaged microbiome. And yeah. as we know, this has so many repercussions. If we look at the gut as the engine right in the center, right, that I like to point out, and then we think about, you know, the gut-brain axis. We know that 80, 90% of the neurotransmitters like serotonin, the feel-good hormone, are made in the gut. If your microbiome is disrupted, who's making the serotonin? It's a gut bacteria. If you're, if you're taking antibiotics every couple months and you're, you know, decimating your microbiome or steroids or birth control pills or NSAIDs or all these other things, what that means is that your seroponin, serotonin production is going to be affected that means that your mood is going to be affected. And we also know that serotonin is a precursor hormone for tryptophan, which, you know, is a sleep for, sorry, we know that serotonin is made from tryptophan and serotonin is a precursor hormone for melatonin, the sleep hormone. Mm -hmm. So now, you know, your serotonin levels are messed up. Your melatonin levels are messed up. Your sleep is messed up. Messed up sleep is going to mess up your immune response. I mean, it's all connected. We look at autoimmune diseases that affect one in four Americans. And, you know, that are, we started out with a couple dozen, now we're at over a hundred. So things like lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriasis, eczema, yeah. these are really common things. In fact, Rip, we've come to accept them. I never even heard of them when I was growing up. Yeah, Literally. absolutely. And, and now it seems like everybody has some little autoimmune disorder. Absolutely. And you think it's purely, re purely related to, well, not purely, but mostly related to dysbiosis in the gut? It Absolutely. There's a direct correlation between our super sanitized lifestyle. And there's a, a great, I mean, I've talked about this study for years now, David Strawn from the London School of Tropical Medicine and Hygiene. So he was tasked back in the 1950s to figure out why they were seeing from back then rising rates of autoimmune disease in kids in the UK, hay fever, which is like mm. asthma, basically, and eczema. And he embarked on a 21-year study of over 17,000 kids from birth to adulthood. And he found two really surprising facts that form the basis of what we call the hygiene hypothesis, which we'll talk about in a minute. But what he found was that kids who were from large families who were getting coughed on and sneezed on and you know, exposed to the usual childhood illnesses, those kids weren't getting autoimmune diseases later on because they, their immune system was sort of trained by exposure to these fairly harmless pathogens. Kids who, the other surprising thing was that kids from wealthier families where they had higher levels of hygiene, and back then there was a correlation between wealth and hygiene, now there certainly isn't, but um, back then in 1950s, sort of post-industrial London, the kids who were bathing and washing and super clean had higher rates of those autoimmune diseases. And what's really interesting is if we look at a map of the world today, you know, couple, several decades later, what we see is high rates of autoimmune disease in more developed countries like North America, Western Europe, et cetera, and lower rates in countries like Sub-Saharan Africa, Southeast Asia. But, but 
as those countries become more industrialized, as they start to eat highly pesticized, ultra-processed food, as they start to use more antibiotics, their rates of autoimmune disease are also rising too. So, mm. you know, there is a direct correlation between this sort of super sanitization. And I, you know, I think it's important to point out that super sanitization has its benefits too. Like, I'm glad I don't have to worry about getting cholera from the drinking water, right? That's huge. But where the pendulum has swung now to where we're seeing more of these non-contagious diseases, autoimmune diseases, diabetes, obesity, cancer, things like this, that are the main threat. So the main threat isn't cholera anymore. I mean, we still have tuberculosis and these things in, in lots of parts of the world, but in, in the part of the world where we live, the main threat is non-communicable diseases and really lifestyle diseases, diseases that are a direct result of the food that we eat, the way we live. We're sedentary, we're not out in nature. We eat processed foods. We don't eat a lot of plants, all of these things. And these things are very, very, very easily reversible, right? Once people know about it. So I, I look at the books as public health messaging, and I'm, I'm happy to say that I'm not trying to sell anybody anything other than some really good advice here and point them in the direction of, you know, great, great products and um, other medications, like in the plan at the end of the book, I go through these medications you mentioned and I say, yeah. okay, here's what you can ask your doctor. And I talk about alternate dose schedule, reduced dose. You know, if you can be at 200 milligrams or less of the ibuprofen, you'll probably be okay. Ask them about this version of a non-steroidal that does, isn't as damaging to the gut lining. Like here, here's a tapering schedule for your proton pump inhibitor. So it's not just doom and gloom, like these things are terrible, don't do them, but like, what can you do? Because I mean, you're a triathlete, I'm a very slow marathoner and um, a, a baby snowboarder. And I've had, I remember tearing my MCL snowboarding Powder Mountain in Utah and that thing was excruciating. And because I don't take this stuff, you know, my husband went and got me some, I, he got me like 800 milligrams of Motrin and I took that and rip, I was like, this is like magic. I mean, I couldn't believe it. Like the pain was gone. You know, I was hobbling around. I, I didn't know how I was going to get back on the plane because I couldn't bend my leg. And I took this Motrin and it was, it was just unbelievable. And immediately I was like, oh, this can't possibly be good for you <laughs> because it's, it's yeah. taken away all my pain, right? Like what's the price on the back end? And there's definitely a price. So I just want to say like, I, I am a huge advocate for all of these medications and techniques that we have, but I want to see them used judiciously, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm very critical of the overuse, but I'm very glad that we have them. I mean, modern medicine provides so many tools and innovations that can help people not just live better, but that can help people survive who wouldn't otherwise have survived. But we have to use things more judiciously and we have to reject the idea of these diseases as being normal. They're not normal. Yeah. And they are, for the most part, made, not born. I mean, there is a genetic predisposition for a lot of them. And, and that's a good segue into another one of my favorite studies from a long time ago, this study by um, Paolo Leonetti, an Italian gastroenterologist in Florence, 
who looked at kids born in Florence, Italy, eating a diet virtually identical to the standard American diet, lots of animal protein, fat, sugar, et cetera, low fiber. And he compared them to kids who are living in Bolpon, Burkina Faso, eating a high fiber diet, locally grown, living very much like their, um, the Mossi tribe, living very much like their Neolithic ancestors did. Their main protein source, animal protein source, was termites in the rainy season. And other than that, eating mostly plants. And what he found is that at birth and in early infancy, the microbiome looked the same in babies who were born vaginally and breastfed. But as soon as those groups of kids kind of graduated to the local diet, everything changed. They were seeing half the levels of short-chain fatty acids in the Italian kids and species that were associated with obesity and inflammation, et cetera. And in the kids in Burkina Faso, they were seeing, again, double the levels of short-chain fatty acids and high levels of species like F. prosnitzia, et cetera, associated with leanness and health. And the really important thing here, Rip, is that we're talking about healthy kids. Neither group of kids were sick, but we were seeing the foundations for disease laid down early on in early childhood, in toddlers, based on the diet. And, you know, on the flip side of that is a study from Nature from 2014, where they took nine volunteers in Boston and they had them eat essentially like an Atkins type diet, you know, pork rinds, prosciutto. They had them on that diet for about a week. They rested them for five days and then they put them on a plant-based diet, a simple plant-based diet jasmine rice, lentils, mango instead of pork rinds for snack. Mm. And what they saw is that within about 30 hours of food hitting the gut, the microbiome started to change dramatically. They started to see the bilophilia, the bile-loving bacteria that need to be around to digest meat drop and some of the healthier species increase. But that wasn't the really dramatic thing. The really dramatic thing was that they started to see these different genes turned on and off. Right. So for people who feel like, you know, like my husband who felt like, oh, I, you know, my father had heart disease. I'm mm -hmm. going to have heart disease. The genes are just a suggestion. The genes don't determine our destiny. Mm. And you can turn stuff around by changing what you're eating within 30 hours. I mean, you can what you're eating today on a Thursday can be your microbiome can be different by Sunday based on those choices. And we know from the great work of the American Gut Project, yeah. 30 or more different plant foods a week, right? You know, Will, Alan, and I, we always talk about the study, 30 or more different plant foods per week, magic number. And that was a legit study, right? Over yeah, a great like study. 10, 10 years, how many thousands? Over, and over 10,000 people. And the thing I love about that study, it was global. It wasn't like, this is what's going on in Olmstead County, Minnesota, right? This yeah. was a global study. And the other really interesting thing about that study was it didn't matter what people call themselves. It was what they ate mm -hmm. at the end of the day, right? The proof was in the plate. It was what they were actually eating that was important. And so I have plenty of patients who will say, well, doc, I eat vegetables every day, but they're eating the same peas, carrots, broccoli in heavy rotation. And we yeah. know from that study, 10 or fewer different plant foods per week was associated with a, a much less robust, rich, diverse, healthy microbiome compared to 30 or more. And I remind people too, it's not just vegetables, it's fruits, it's grains, it's herbs, it's spices, yeah. you get credit for all of it. It's it's your, it's the pumpkin seeds, the walnuts, the berries and your oatmeal. It's not just the oats themselves. Right? Well, and in, in, in your book, which was phenomenal, I loved reading it. 
you you mentioned how you know you look at again how Americans eat, and we're not even most of us aren't eating one serving of whole grains a day. We're not having, I think, one piece of fruit a day. Not having two vegetables a day. I mean, it is it's really ludicrous. And it's, yeah, less than three percent of Americans are eating the recommended, and the recommended amount is minimal amount of beans yeah. and greens a day. Less than three yeah. percent. We are eating in a way that is designed to make us sick and susceptible. Yeah, yeah, to dysbiosis, to um, leaky gut, all these things. You have a you have a system that that you recommend for people to start introducing more fruits and vegetables. It's your one, two, three. Or yeah, three, three, two, one, depending upon which way you want to go. Will you tell everybody about that? Sure. One, two, three is, and I came up with this really over a decade ago in my practice because people are, got very caught up in like how many grams of this and that. And I said, I want you to eat one vegetable in the morning, two at lunch and three at dinner, right? Just do that. But then after the American Gut Project study came out in 2018, I was like, okay, it has to be six different vegetables. And so you know, whatever you're eating, like if you grab a carrot in the morning, that counts as your one for two at lunch. That's easy. You know, if you have a side salad with lettuce and cucumber, you're there. And then for three, I tell people have the salad plus another vegetable. I personally kind of flip it, Rip. You know, I'm a green smoothie kind of gal. I like to get a whole bunch in first thing in the morning. I haven't had mine yet. I'm a little late, but mm -hmm. I'm going to go mix it up. Um, and so I'll do a green smoothie. I do a base of coconut water and then I like to do typically kale and spinach or kale and collards or collards and spinach, but two kind of robust greens, some Kalaloo if it doesn't have any dare repellent on it. And um, then I'll typically do a stalk or two of celery. And then I like to throw in some parsley just for the flavor and then some fruit. So if I have fresh fruit, if it's stone fruit season, I'll use nectarines. I'm a little allergic to peaches, but I'll use nectarines or I'll do mango, fresh or frozen, pineapple, fresh or frozen. I do the fruit kind of for flavor, ice, blend it up. I drink that thing. I feel so amazing. Mm. Like that mm. is my medicine. I am 56. I'm not on any medication. That is my medicine, that green smoothie. And so I know if I get that in in the morning, even if the rest of the day sort of doesn't go as planned, right? I've gotten in like some, I've gotten in like 30 ounces of blended up greens. And I'm also a big soup person. I'm, I'm actually in the midst of making some leek soup with um, super easy. It's just mm. leeks, garlic, onion, scallion, and I saute it all in a pan. And then I put it in the Vitamix with some broth, a little coconut milk, curry powder, of course, and a little, uh, a little turmeric and that's it. And it's delicious. Mm. It sounds delicious. Um, I want to circle back to uh, dysbiosis. And if you could touch upon, so birth control pills, artificial sweeteners, and alcohol, what are your thoughts and how do those affect or not affect the gut? Yeah, let's start with birth control pills, because that's the trickiest one. And it's one I really struggle with. As a physician, as a woman, as a person of color, we know that unwanted pregnancies mm. keep women, particularly women of color, in poverty throughout the world. We know that as a fact. Um, can get in the way of them getting an education, et cetera. So preventing unwanted pregnancies is a huge goal for looking at you know, the economics of being a woman, particularly in poor countries. But at the same time, we also know that birth control 
comes with some problems, particularly hormonal birth control. And it seems that hormonal birth control in certain people can affect the microbiome, not in everyone. But if you look at the sum total too, if you're also somebody who's taken a lot of antibiotics, maybe been a C-section baby, maybe not been nursed, you know, not had a super healthy diet, and then you add that to it. So it's important to point out that the tolerability of this stuff, it's not an absolute for all of these things, right? It depends on what everything else looks like. What else is going on in your terrain? What does your soil look like? But birth control pills can be disruptive to a hormonal birth control to the microbiome. So that one can be tricky. I also worry about the fertility impact, right? If you suppress ovulation mm -hmm. in a young girl at 16 and you suppress it for 20 years, and then at 36, she's trying to have a baby and she's told you're not ovulating. Yeah. You kind of have to wonder, right? Hmm. We suppressed ovulation for 20 years and now she wants to ovulate and needs to ovulate to get pregnant and she's not ovulating. Is there a connection between those things? So birth control pills are tricky because again of the, you know, birth control pills have liberated women in so many ways, but I think it's an important discussion to have with your prescriber about, mm. you know, looking at your health overall and, you know, is this a good idea considering everything else that's going on and whether you have an autoimmune disease or not, what your gut health is like, et cetera. Um, the other one, artificial yeah, art sweeteners. Artificial sweeteners and then- Let's alcohol. tackle that one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. artificial sweeteners, real easy, because just no, just no, absolutely not. No, no, no. And I'll tell you why. Artificial sweeteners can do, first of all, nothing is free, right? So you don't get sweetness without paying a price somewhere else. So if we just talk about the scam, that is this idea of zero calories. Yes, zero calories in a kilometer when you burn it, but not zero calories in terms of weight gain. We know that insulin release, the hormone that controls fat storage, insulin is released in response to sweetness, not calories. Insulin could care less about how many calories are, are in the food or drink, but when something tastes sweet, insulin levels rise and insulin, high insulin levels are associated with fat deposition. So we know that a zero calorie mm. soda is going to result in the same amount of weight gain as a soda with calories. And we know that. So, you know, we, we have to just be smarter about that. So in addition to the fact that it's not saving you calories and these, in fact, uh, sodas in particular and diet sodas are a major risk factor for obesity in this country. We also know that these artificial sweeteners can interfere with the microbiome. They can create more pathogenic bacteria. They can take harmless benign gut bacteria and cause them to mutate into more harmful bacteria that can penetrate the gut lining. They can also, artificial sweeteners like stevia, people are always like, oh, what about stevia? And I'm like, unfortunately, stevia is still a non-nutritive sweetener. And what we know is that some of these newer sweeteners can interfere with communication between gut bacteria. Mm -hmm. So when you think, I mean, it's not a ton of calories, you know, it's like a teaspoon of sugar, come on, it was at 15, 20 calories. And I think once people stop having foods and drinks sweetened by these things, they start to realize these things are super sweet anyway. You don't need it to be that sweet. I mean, I eat dark chocolate and I, I mean, I love a 70%, but I try and eat a 77%. When I eat milk chocolate, I'm like, this is just molten sugar in my mouth. This doesn't taste good. Because yeah. I'm used to, I mean, to me, the 70% is a treat, right? So it's a matter of kind of adjusting your taste buds. And then let's talk about alcohol. Before there was antibiotics, 
there was alcohol as what we use to kill bacteria and sterilize things in the operating room. So alcohol is what we call bactericidal. It kills bacteria. Mm. And that's why when you go to get your blood drawn, they do the little alcohol swab on your skin to, to clean your skin and kill bacteria. Um, that being said, there is there are different amounts of alcohol that your body can potentially tolerate based on you know, what the background noise is, but alcohol is not a health food in anybody or a healthy drink, right? It, it, but you may be able to tolerate it. So if you're drinking a drink every now and again, two or three drinks a week, and you are not taking any other medications that are hard on your liver, you're eating a healthy diet, you're exercising, you're doing all of that. And here's the tricky part. And you can keep that alcohol consumption at a few times a week. You may be able to get away with it. But what we see is that every year the guidelines change. So in the UK, the guidelines were one or more alcoholic drinks in women increase with double the risk of reproductive cancers, which means one or more double. So you have to have six drinks or less. In Canada now, they, their public health authorities have now come out and said no amount of alcohol is healthy, right? The healthy amount of alcohol is zero. And so, again, this is a very individual decision for a lot of people to really take a, an honest look at their alcohol consumption and say, you know, is this a healthy amount of alcohol? And I, I think if you're having six drinks or more per week, that's, uh, you know, anything above that is clearly unhealthy. And in my patients who have autoimmune disease, so if I'm taking care of a patient with Crohn's and their disease is active, and we're trying to get their disease into remission without a biologic, without a steroid, which is always our goal, zero amount of alcohol is probably tolerable in that situation. If you have somebody who is, has had colon cancer or has a lot of risk factors for it, zero amount of alcohol. So again, look, you know, if you were a perfectly healthy person with no medical problems whatsoever, you eat a perfect diet, you exercise all the time, you sleep, you do all of those things, could you have a couple drinks a week and probably stay healthy? Yeah, you probably could. But that's not most of us. That's not most of us. So from if you are somebody with dysbiosis and you are trying to really heal mm -hmm. your gut and improve that microbiome, there's not mm -hmm. a lot of room there in the cup for alcohol in that setting because, you know, it kills bacteria. Yeah, you know, like I told you, we just got back from this six-day um, retreat in Sedona, and we don't, we don't serve any alcohol there. And it's amazing how many of the participants for the first time in their adulthood have gone that long without any alcohol consumption and have realized, wow, you know what? I didn't miss it. I woke up easier. I went to bed easier. I actually laughed more than I ever have. And how really it just, it's become a habitual, in many cases, just kind of a, a crutch. Yeah. So I would sure. encourage anybody that's listening you know, really take a hard look at your alcohol consumption. And I can tell you, Robin, I haven't, I haven't been drinking for probably a good 20 years and I was never an alcoholic. I just prefer the way I feel when I'm not drinking at all. And I think it's a great example that I'm setting too for my three young kids. Let me ask you, when you, was that a, a sort of concerted decision to say, okay, I'm not going to drink anymore? Or was it just a gradual falling away of something that you felt didn't serve you? No, it's the latter. Just a gradual mm -hmm. falling away of something that didn't serve me. And I've never enjoyed the taste of alcohol. 
right? I've never liked the taste of wine, uh, beers. Every once in a while, a cold beer was nice, but uh, I don't miss it in the least. <laughs> it is, though. I mean, I think you you make an important point about the the habit. I mean, it is a physiologically addictive thing in addition mm. to the emotional piece, right? So you feel like, oh, I've had a hard day, or, you know, need some alcohol, I'm celebrating, I need some alcohol, whatever it is. It is physiologically addictive in addition to that. And so people can, and I love um, this book called This Naked Mind, Annie Grace. I don't know if you've read it or had her on. I've heard, but it. I've heard of it, she's yes. She's phenomenal, yeah. Because she talks about it, she's somebody who was an alcoholic and is sober, and but she talks about, you know, the physiological dependence. Most people can power through that. And after a few weeks, they're over that, right? They, mm -hmm. Their body can adjust. But it is the emotional dependence and it is a belief, the subliminal belief. And it's reinforced every day, all the time by all the messaging that life is less fun without alcohol, right? that you're not going to have a good time. You're not going to be able to celebrate or mourn or whatever it is. And, and she talks in the book about, I know we're supposed to be talking about my book, but it, it is a great book. And I, I do always love to salute other people out there who I think are doing great work. Um, you know, she talks about like making that decision on a daily basis, having to like, oh, should I drink? Should I not drink? Versus making that one-time decision to say, yeah. hey, this thing is making my life worse, not better. And once you make that decision, you know, of course, I think there's probably a little bit more to it than that. But um, yeah, these things are not these things that we think of as fringe, right? Like eating vegetables, not drinking, exercising a lot. What I want to say to people out there is look at the people who are doing this. Look at people like Rip, like his sister Jane, like his mother Anne, like his dad Essie. Look at people like Rich Roll who are living that life. Like there's a vibrancy. There's health and vibrancy and joy in that, that I think is not a coincidence. I mean, maybe the Esselstein clan are just a joyful group, right? Maybe you just have that joyful gene. There's some of that, but there's also, as I said on the back of Anne and Jane's book, I want some of what they're having. You know, there's, there's like, there's a lot of dirt, sweat and veg going on in that family. And, um, you know, it's not a coincidence that I think people who are living this way are reaping certain benefits that all of us can reap if we <clears throat> if we live a little more that way. You, you know, I, I would try and sit with somebody different at every lunch. In this one lunch, I sat with four women. One of them was from DC and they are all, they were like best friends. They decided to come to this retreat and they were all in their mid to late fifties. And every one of them had stopped alcohol within the last year or two. And it, I just, they went around the table just remarking how their lives had been so vastly improved, but it's so hard in this culture where everywhere you turn, it's like, oh yeah, here's, here's wine, here's beer, here's this, here's that. And it's just like eating this way. You have to kind of go out of your way to make the, the right healthy choice. Yeah, and um, find the people who support that. Like, I love the yeah. story of them coming together and like doing this fun thing yeah. as almost like you'd go on a spa trip, right? Like girls trip to come to, to plant stock. And um, it's like your kids and you know, this, you have, you have kids, like your kids absorb the behavior and, you know, values of the kids they spend a lot of time with. So we all know, like, we want our kids to be friends with these kids. Well, we have to think about that as adults too. You know, who do we, who do we want to rub off on us? 
Yeah. So I want to talk a little bit more about your book here. In, in chapter eight, you talk about building up your body, right? Yeah. Like growing a good gut garden and what's what we want to do with that, with food and exercise. Chapter nine is about securing defenses. So, you know, let's make sure that we don't dismantle all these defenses that we have, which we've talked about, which we're doing unwittingly. We're doing it with all, you know, all the antibiotics and the birth control pills and the alcohol and the sweeteners. Chapter 10 is mastering your mind. I'd love for us to talk a little bit about mastering your mind and changing our environment, which is chapter 11, because I think these are really important things that most people listening or a lot of people listening would get a great value out of. I'm so glad you mentioned those, Rip, because as a gastroenterologist, you know, I'm very focused on the stomach acid and the gut lining and the bacteria and the mucus production in the gut. And I'll tell you, the research in this area is astounding. Mm. And so, you know, again, pointing out great books, um, Why We Sleep, Matthew Walker, Sleep Better, Sean Stevenson. When you look at the data, the sleep data, like, and just to put it in perspective, if we go seven days without food, we'll be pretty hangry. You know, we'll be hungry and angry, but we'll eat some food and we'll be fine. If we go seven days without water, we'll be really dehydrated and our kidneys may even start to be affected. If we go seven days without sleep, we're never recovering from that. Like we are, I mean, that's why the Guinness Book of War Records doesn't take those, how long can you go without sleep records anymore? Because they're so destructive to our health. Seven days without sleep, your risk for heart disease will have skyrocketed. If you're a man, your testosterone levels would have fallen precipitously. You know, your risk for stroke, your body just starts to break down. So sleep is this elixir that reboots our computer system. And in terms of immune function, the data from COVID, two things I want to tell people about. One is that um, the study shows that chronic sleep deprivation, you know, people are getting less than six hours a night linked to a 76% higher likelihood of becoming, because again, you know, lots of us are exposed to viruses, but the question is, do we get infected? And if we yeah. get infected, how sick do we get, right? So it's not exposure. That is the main thing here. Exposure to some extent is inevitable, as we talked about with these things being ubiquitous, but illness and and debility and death are not inevitable. So in this study, it was 76% increased risk for every additional hour of sleep people got, the risk dropped by 12%. We know that vaccines are less effective in people who are sleep deprived. Mm. We know that we've seen that with these recent round of COVID vaccines, that the vaccines can be as much as 50% less effective if you're sleep deprived in the two days before you get the vaccine. So we know sleep is essential. We know that in terms of recruiting T cells as part of the immune response, that we just don't get the same level of T cell recruitment when we're sleep deprived stress. Well, you know, and you also, you also mentioned how sunlight energizes those T cells. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and sunrise also, when we wake up in the morning and we open our shades or the sunlight comes in, the sunlight causes the melatonin levels to fall. We're awake. And at night when it gets dark, the melatonin rises. So the sunlight is an important part of sort of modulating that sleep cycle, right? The stressing is another one. And, you know, we see the physical manifestations of stress, of acute stress. Like if a snake all of a sudden, you know, slithered into the room behind me, I would get pretty stressed out. So my blood pressure would go up, my heart rate would go up, my respiratory rate would go up, the hair on my body would stand on end. 
And, you know, all of these physiological changes would be manifest in my body as a result of some frightening thing like seeing the snake. But it's chronic stress that's a problem. So that acute stress is, you know, the fight or flight, your adrenaline, noradrenaline coursing through your body. It's getting ready to help you do something like run out of the room <laughs> from the snake. But what's happening is that we're having those high levels of adrenaline, noradrenaline, et cetera, coursing through our body chronically as a result of, you know, all the stress in our lives, stress about our jobs, about our kids, about our livelihood, about, you know, what do we want to be when we grow up? All the different things that are constantly percolating in our mind that cause us stress. And that kind of chronic stress doesn't have a survival advantage. Mm -hmm. It has exactly the opposite, right? And it is ruinous for our immune system. So we know that stress can actually increase levels of more pathogenic bacteria by a thousand fold wow. in a few hours. And that's why I think of college students at exam time. They are stressed out, they are sleep deprived, and they are like eating poorly and they get sick. They come down with the flu, a cold, pneumonia, mono, you name it, right? So it's an experiment right there. So the contribution of those things, and then also the correlation with those things between the gut, right? With gut and sleep, because of course, as I mentioned, serotonin, the feel-good hormone is made in the gut. It's a precursor for melatonin, the sleep hormone. You start yeah. to see the connection. There's a gut-brain axis via the vagus nerve. And then of course, all the connection too with stress. And stress is one of the biggest contributors to dysbiosis, to a messed up microbiome, can, can hugely affect what's going on with a microbiome. So this is like, it's like a manual for your body, you know, with a, with a gut-centric view. And um, it really, it was, this book was hard to write, Rip. It was really tough because unlike the other three books that I literally could have just regurgitated yeah. out in my sleep, I've been a gastroenterologist for decades. I know this stuff inside and out. This was a new virus. The science was changing by the hour. I mean, I would mm -hmm. read four articles in the morning. By the evening, seven new articles would have come out that I needed to read to process all of this. But what we know, the, the, the virus is novel, but the science is not novel. The science is not new. We know about the science of the microbiome. We know about post-viral syndromes. We know about viral resiliency from polio, from you know the Spanish flu epidemic. And so once we kind of got through the chaos of like, oh my goodness, what is happening? And we're able to sort of regain some sort of balance, we were able to, I think all of us in the medical and the scientific community to say, wait a second, we, we actually know a lot about this and a lot about what to do. And I, I really enjoyed like historically reading a lot about polio and mm -hmm. Spanish flu epidemic. One of the amazing things about the Spanish flu epidemic is this whole concept of the open air factor, the OAF. So what they saw is that often the officers during the Spanish flu epidemic 100 years ago would be put inside the hospital to recuperate. And the enlisted men were just put on cots outside and they noticed a huge difference in mortality. In some studies, as big a difference as 40% mortality for the officers in the hospital and 13% for the enlisted men outside. Wow. And so this open air factor is defined as a germicidal constituent in air that basically is harmful to toxins, to pathogens, to bacteria. And, you know, we've seen glimmers of it with this whole idea of forest bathing, what the Japanese call Shinrin-yoku, right? And you walk through the forest and you breathe and you listen and the sights and the sounds. And, and in that study, 
the forest bathing people who were taken out into the forest versus a Tokyo suburb, they found, you know, markers for heart disease decreased, blood pressure improved, feelings of well-being improved. But we know it has an antiviral effect too. So not only does being outside decrease viral transmission, it also improves outcome from viruses. Now that might be hard if you get COVID like I did in January in DC, right in the middle of a snowstorm. But, you know, in terms of our resiliency of remembering that in addition to the food we're eating and getting sleep and trying not to be so stressed, getting outside, just walking outside in air, in addition to the sunlight, the vitamin D, this whole concept of the open air factor is really important. And I give some great suggestions how to do that from an organization called Forestry England for, you know, how to walk through. It doesn't have to be, you know, I'm lucky to be surrounded by Rock Creek Park where I live in DC, but you could be in an urban area and how to walk through a city um, in a way that you're going to derive some benefit. And hug trees while you're doing it. You mentioned hug trees. Hug some trees for sure. So Robin, okay. Wonderful stuff. Um, you have your top 10 list. Yes. That, that you have in the book. Do you, do you, I think we should go through some of those and, and I can tee you up if you want me to. Yeah, yeah, sure. Tee me up. Because okay. okay. I mean, I know what they are, but I will <laughs> yeah. get the order wrong. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. So your number one on the list is eat more vegetables. Even if you are a vegan, eat more vegetables. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the way you say, you don't care if it's raw, steamed, sauteed, blended up, just get them in. Get them in. Yeah. Um, pass on factory food is number two. Yeah. I think there's a lot of confusion about what a processed food is. So I like to make it really simple for people. Like there is, if you see lentils, you know, okay, where lentils came from, but there's no lentil chip tree or plant or bush, right? Like apples versus applesauce or, you know, corn on the cob versus, you know, they make tires, car tires from corn. So yeah, if something, um, and so people show me these bars all the time and I'm like, okay, yeah, those ingredients look pretty good, but you could also just go eat some nuts and dates and stuff too. Right. And not to say, I mean, there's tons of stuff I eat that is processed and is from a factory because it's convenient and I think it's still healthy, but you want to try and increase the amount of stuff coming out of the ground and minimize the amount of stuff coming from the factory. Well, and I couldn't agree with you more there. I mean, literally when you look at the data that's been generated from the U.S. Economic Council and you see that 60% of what we consume is classified as a processed slash refined food, that's a very, very important uh, top 10 list. Uh, (laughs) Number two, Um, you say include some ferments. And I have to say that fermented food is something that I don't do like hardly ever. How important is that? Yeah, again, it's one of those things. You eat tons of other plants, so I think you're fine with skipping some ferments. I like uh, sauerkraut that has a little apple in it. I'm not a kimchi fan, even though I like spicy stuff. But again, in somebody who's really trying to build up their microbiome, particularly after a round of antibiotics or they've been on PPIs for a few years, this can be really important. So we know that a tablespoon, about which is about 10 grams typically of something like sauerkraut, can provide up to two dozen different bacterial strains 
plus all the post metabolites that they're making, right? It's like a living vitamin and you're also getting the fiber from the cabbage. So I think the fermented category is really important for, again, your microbiome has been majorly disrupted and you're trying to rebuild and can be more effective than a probiotic for a lot of people. Right, 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 right. But I think you're good. I think you're good. You definitely can get a pass on the ferments. Yeah. I mean, every once in a while, I'll do some kimchi or something like that. But, and obviously, I do enjoy tempeh, right? Mm-hmm. I think which, is, which qualifies as one. Um, we've already talked, I think, pretty extensively about number four on your list, which is drink alcohol in moderation, dot, 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 or not at all. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so number five is hydrate. And I think that a lot of Americans are chronically dehydrated. <laughs> there you go, mm. including, including myself. And you even talk about how important it is for our mucus. Absolutely. So, yeah. yeah. What do you, what yeah, do you recommend so, there with hydration? So mucus, again, is this like, you know, crazy combination of, of like glue and jello that traps pathogens like viruses and it traps other things too, pollen, et cetera, but it traps it. And then it doesn't just trap it and the cilia, you know, you cough it out. It also has enzymes that are active in it that are actively degrading these viruses. So mucus is a really important host defense. When you're not well hydrated, your mucus becomes more like somebody with cystic fibrosis, right? So they have a genetic disease that makes their mucus have a lower water content and it's thicker and it's not able to be as effective. So dehydration can move us more in that direction or, you know, taking an antihistamine, something like that, that dries up our mucus can be really Mm. a sabotaging move for that host defensive mucus. You want the mucus to flow. And there's some simple things you can do with the mucus. And I give a bunch of examples in the book, but hydration is obviously, you know, not smoking, things like that, but hydration is a key for having healthier mucus that's able to serve you better. Yeah. Um, I think there's, let's see, one, two, three. Four, and let's five. not forget too, Rip, that, you know, how do viruses, once they're in our body, get out? Well, since a, a really common way for them to get into our body is that we swallow them, we ingest them, they get out by being washed out. And what helps move the products of digestion, including mm-hmm. any viruses that are there from north to south, is just good old water. So it is, you know, we know that fecal shedding and elimination of the viruses is an important route of elimination. And you're going to be much more efficient at that if you're well hydrated. Nice. Number six is avoid unnecessary medications. I feel like we've talked about this, but I'd love for you to talk a little bit more specifically about antibiotics because I feel like they are very much, and I'm using this term carefully, abused. But you even talk like about how antibiotic resistance, resistant infections now kill more people per year than all murders and all car accidents combined. And that blew my mind when I saw that. Yeah, it's crazy. I didn't didn't know this was that much of an issue. So So it's an issue for society because if we're not more judicious with these antibiotics, we're going to get to the point where all the bugs are resistant superbugs and we're going to be plunged back into the dark ages hundred years ago when we had no antibiotics. We're, yeah. we're rapidly heading there. But they're also a danger for the individual because they cause dysbiosis. And the startling statistic is that about five days of a broad spectrum antibiotic, like the type you would use for a sinus infection or a bladder infection, can remove up to a third of your gut bacteria. And you know, wishful thinking that you're just going to take a probiotic and you're good. That is not how it works. 
But there are also other problems. So the, the nurses' health study earlier this year showed, data from the nurses' health study showed that in middle-aged women, and they described this as women in their 50s who were taking more than two months' worth of antibiotics over a several-year period, yeah. who cumulatively, cumulatively taken more than two months of antibiotics, that there was a significant decrease in global cognition. And that drop in cognition, that sort of global decline, was equivalent to aging the brain three to four years. So, you know, I think people are waking up to the idea that it's not just that antibiotics are bad to take because you're causing resistant superbugs in the environment. They're bad to take because they're disrupting your own health mm -hmm. in terms of the antibiotics. And I, I do give a list of those, you know, what are the most important questions to ask if you've been prescribed an antibiotic, starting with, hey, is this antibiotic actually necessary? And you'd be surprised the amount of times that that prescribing is a gray zone. And the doctor's like, oh, actually, it's not. Would you prefer not to take it? That's fine. So you want to ask that question. And then I also go through, you know, what to do if you have to take an antibiotic and, you know, the mushroom tea and all the other things that you can do, the ferments, et cetera, to help build up your microbiome. Beautiful. We also have talked about this, but if I just want to give you another opportunity to circle back on it. And that's sleep. I think you mentioned that I mean, it seems like most people are getting adults, it seems like less than seven and certainly less than six with all the, the, um, the screen time here. But you have a fantastic chapter. I believe it's under Mastering Your Mind about getting good sleep. And you have 28 different bullet points that you ask people to like really look at and examine. And I went through each one of those. And I got to tell you, Robin, I mean, I did about 20 of them. And I was so like, Oh yeah, I'm nailing that one, nailing that one, <laughs> nailing that one, that one. I'm, I can, okay. I'm going to improve on that one. But this was, this to me was like really valuable information. I'll tell you, Rip, when I turn in the first draft of the book, the sleep chapter was 61 pages. And my team at Penguin Random House and Avery, they were like, yeah, um, Matthew Walker wrote that book. Like, <laughs> you know, we need to dial to, I mean, I was so juiced about the sleep. Yeah. That I just, I mean, it was like the sleep chapter was a book. So I had to condense it. But what I really did was I took a lot of stuff out of the sleep chapter and put it in the plan like those. And I divided it up, as you saw, by like, this is, you know, yeah. environment, body, mind, supplements. Because I'm like, people are not sleeping. They are not realizing the connection between the gut and sleep and sleep and the immune system, the gut and the immune system. I've got to connect the dots for people. So I'm, I'm really proud of the prescriptive part of the sleep one in there. And I tell you, of all the things in the book, it's the one I struggle the most with. And I feel it. I mean, talk about feeling hungover when you are sleep deprived to the point now, like I won't take a red eye. I needed to go to Vegas for a meeting and the folks who wanted me to come were saying, I had to get back to DC and they're like, oh, we can put you on the red eye. I was like, absolutely not. I'm well, not missing a night of sleep. Yeah. And what happens is you take that red eye and you get maybe three and a half hours of sleep. You don't recover from that for probably two or three days. Yeah. If, if, you, if at all. If at all is what we see is you can't really pay down a sleep yeah. debt. Yeah. is it affects you. Yeah. What, so what, what are your personal challenges when it comes to sleep? Why is that so hard for you? <laughs> so I live, I showed you, I turned around the screen and I'll just turn it around quickly for people here yeah. that I live surrounded by this amazing Rock Creek forest, right? And it's absolutely beautiful. And our bedroom upstairs is all glass and we have the forest. And so when we, when we, 
you know, built this house about four years ago, I was like, oh, I don't want any window treatments. Like, I just want to, you know, wake up with the sun. And that's all fine because it's all forest and there's no lights out there. But we have wonderful neighbors <laughs> on one side who a couple years ago put up some lights outside that they keep oh. on all the time. They have these small dogs. And I've just been hoping that like, maybe they'll listen to this and they'll turn them down. But I, I feel like it's kind of an imposition for me to ask them to say, could you turn those lights off? They're like holiday lights, really bright outside. And so they create so much light pollution. <laughs> they have them on all the time. So now it's like daylight. <laughs> I mean, it's not quite daylight, but it's very light in our room. And I haven't wanted to do window treatments to get blackout shades, but yeah, we're getting blackout shades. We're getting blackout. We, we like yeah. have, you know, they're on the way. Um, because I so love the, I mean, I feel so lucky to live. It's like living in a snow globe. You know, I live in this house and the bedroom is just surrounded by forest and there's nobody that, I mean, if I don't have clothes on, like the deer and the owls can see me, but there's nobody. <laughs> it's just forest. Yeah. So we haven't needed any window treatments for privacy, but I'll tell you, I listened, I think I first listened to Matt Walker's Why We Sleep. I first listened to him, I think, on Rich's podcast, and then I might have watched his masterclass. I read his book, and I was like, yeah, we got to do something, because I that is really the thing. I mean, I also am aware, like, you know, particularly like when I was writing this book, I'd jump out of bed, and I'd have my notebook, and I would turn the light on, of course, and wake my husband up and write something down. Um so I am one of those people who with sleep, I'll start meditating and something will come up and, you know, like some of my best thoughts come up while I'm sleeping for sure. But I figured out how to deal with that. And I love it because I actually get, you know, these great ideas and, and I'll write them down and be able to go back to sleep. There is a certain amount of, you know, worry, perseveration. You're thinking about yeah. something. You can't turn the, yeah. the, the computer in your head off. But I, I'm pretty good at that stuff now. So I would say right now it's really the light and I, I got to make it dark. Yeah. Can I make a suggestion? Yes. <laughs> that I know that an eye mask? <laughs> well, certainly an eye mask. And there's lots out there. And some of them really do a phenomenal job at blocking out the light. I did, I've tried them. I don't usually like anything on my face, but you can get used to it. Kind of like a seatbelt getting in the car. Um, but what about going and having just a nice heart-to-heart with your neighbor. With neighbor. Yeah. I mean, I know it's a little uncomfortable, but I think if you were to couch it in the right way, you know, um, you might be able to get them to turn it off maybe after 1030 or 11 PM might be, yeah. might be something. It's a good idea. They're lovely people. And, you know, yeah. I think I could have the conversation in a way for them not to feel pressured, but just to say, yeah. Hey, we're, we're about to get these blinds, but I just yeah. wanted to, yeah, no, it's a good idea. Cause I can't sleep with the eye mask thing on my face either. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. But I Thank know you what you mean. That. I, I used to live in an, in an apartment when I was at college and there was a bright light and even with the shades down, it, it came through and it was the worst year of my life as far as just like sleep and stuff like that. It was, so I feel your pain there. Let's, <laughs> let's move on. Um, so the next is exercise. And, you know, we, we, at the very, very top of this, we talked about how, you know, you, you're, you love to run and you were doing the triathlons and squash and yoga. Um, you know, I'm very active. What, what have you shown as far as like, how important is exercise for, um, for us to be like, build up our immune system and, uh, and our, and our gut? 
it's the studies show it's the most important non-pharmaceutical intervention for our immune system. Yeah. And if, if um, people might have seen the New York Times article from uh, early October, mid-October, maybe second week in October, I think it might have been October 14th, that said um, hair for tried and true ways to boost your immune system. And when they say boost, they don't mean make it overactive. They mean to optimize yeah. it. Um, and exercise was the number one thing. Exercise was the number one thing. And the study they quote showed that people who are exercising five days a week for, you know, ideally at least 30 minutes a day have a 43% lower likelihood of coming down with a viral respiratory tract infection. So, you know, the site, and that's just one of dozens of different studies that we have out there. That, so again, the most important non-pharmaceutical mm -hmm. um, modification of the immune system yeah. is exercise. And somebody, you know, I, I posted it on social media and somebody asked, well, how much and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, look, ideally 30 minutes, five days a week minimum of vigorous exercise, enough to get your heart rate up 20% or more. But, but even raking leaves outside, even going for a walk where your heart rate isn't necessarily 20% above your baseline can make a difference, right? So it's like colon cancer screening. Some is better than none. There are definitely types of colon cancer screening that are better, but even the worst kind is better than no screening at all. And I think the same is true for exercise. Like any, you know, whatever you like to do, if you're doing something, you're moving your body. And the really fascinating thing, Rip, is that even in people who have obesity, which we know is a major risk factor for poor outcome from viral infections, if they are exercising regularly, even if they are not losing weight, we, sh we know that they are improving their resiliency. Mm -hmm. So exercise is a big one. And let me just say, I do yeah. all of these things. You know, I'm a marathon runner, a yoga, squash, tennis. I'm not particularly good at any of them. Like, I remember when I ran my first Marine Corps marathon back in 1998. And you know how parents are. My mom was like, did you win? <laughs> like, um, I finished. Did you make it to Boston? So, <laughs> right. And you know, I'm Jamaican, so I'm supposed to be fast, but I'm not fast. I can go far, but I'm slow. But I feel so grateful to be able to be out there, right? Like, yeah. Whether I'm walking on the trails, I'm running, I'm lifting weights, whatever I'm doing, I, I mean, it really is my moment of gratitude of like, I can do this. Like my body still works well enough for me to be able to do this. Mm -hmm. You have a quote in, in your book. It's just like there's no bad veggies, there's no bad exercise, <laughs> which, uh, I believe it. Which, I, which I adore. So everybody, find something that resonates with you and move that body. We already did talk about this one as well, but um, I feel like not enough people get outside these days. And I was just looking at a study, Robin, that came from the Kaiser Permanente family study. And it showed that of our America youth today, the average American youth is now in front of a screen seven and a half hours every day. And guess how many minutes they're outside playing a day. Seven. seven minutes, seven minutes. Wow. So seven, seven and, and a half, half hours and yeah, is seven minutes. What a disparity there. Yeah. There's, yeah. I mean, there's a term for it. Nature deficit disorder is, you know, it's a real thing. Yeah. I mean, it's like a fancy way of saying this is what happens when kids are not outside. Yeah. yeah. Physical health, mental health breaks down everything. Yeah. yeah. And this, and number 10 on your list is something that I really want to do more of, and 
I, I need to carve out some time for it and just get quiet. That's the hardest one. <laughs> What's with getting quiet? Why is that something that we should do? Yeah, it, it's just really learning to activate your parasympathetic nervous system, right? So in terms of mm. the stress, sympathetic nervous system, fight or flight, revs you up, parasympathetic quiets you down. And there are different ways to get to it with breath, et cetera. But just getting quiet um, physically, mentally, emotionally, all of that is a good way to trigger that parasympathetic nervous system. And, you know, Rev, you're a high energy guy. I've seen you in person in action. I mean, you're like, yeah, let's run 20 miles. Let's do and um, and that stuff is super important. And for you, you probably don't need a lot of time. We're probably talking about five minutes. It could be, mm-hmm. for me, it's often when I wake up in the morning. And, you know, my husband's like, aren't you getting out of bed? I'm like, I'm meditating. <laughs> but I'm, you know, just quietly, calmly thinking about stuff. So for me, it's often in the morning before I get out of bed or when I get into bed before I fall asleep. So it doesn't necessarily have to be in the middle of the day. You have to go sit somewhere. It can be at one of those convenient times, too. Yeah. Um, what are your ride or die guidelines? <laughs> yeah. My dirt, sweat, veg, baby. That's it. <laughs> I mean, if I were, you know, trying to be more inclusive, I would say dirt, sweat, veg, sleep, water, but dirt, sweat, veg. I, I got to get me some nature. I got to get sweaty and I have got to eat some vegetables. I mean, those are, and I don't get all, you know, I don't get really complicated about what that looks like, right? Did I, you know, lift weights at Petworth Studio, past CrossFit Studio? Did I do yoga? Did I run? How fast? How far? Did I, you know, was I actually in the woods versus on the edge of the woods? You know, how many vegetables? I just try and do those three things. And it was funny, in, in medical school, I had this thing I don't know how I came up with it, but it was, I don't even think I consciously came up with it, but it was a street was like my, my three things. And I had to have at least two out of three every day for me to feel like, okay, I'm good. The three things were, I had to get a little work done as in actual schoolwork. (laughs) I had to eat right. And I had to get some exercise and Mm -hmm. eat right was, you know, it wasn't, there wasn't a lot of rules around it, but I knew what that was. That meant like, if I was doing a shift in the emergency room as a student, I wasn't eating starburst for my dinner. Right. It wasn't, but B, I was just like not eating too much junk was basically it. Getting some exercise and doing a little bit of work. And again, if I did a little bit of work and I got some exercise and I ate a bunch of junk, it was okay. Or Mm -hmm. if I didn't eat a lot of junk, and I, but I didn't get exercise, but I got some work. It was okay. But when I wasn't getting at least two out of the three, I just felt like, you know, I'm, I'm not feeling so good because I like to kind of keep the work steady, right? So that it's not, oh my goodness, it's the exam. And I've, I've no idea what's been going on. I like to feel like not panicked. And so, you know, I encourage people like figure out what your ride or die, like what's your three things that you feel like, you know, yeah. are your things. What are your three things, Rip? I mean, <laughs> that I need to do every day? Well, I'm not, not need to do, but you feel good. Like the three things that you feel like oh, yeah, oh, these oh, are oh, three oh. important things. That, yeah. yeah. Oh, my gosh. So it's very easy for me. It is getting a workout. Usually it's yep. first, first thing. It allows me to sweat. get mm-hmm. on top of the day. Then it's always eating plant strong, right? Mm-hmm. So three meals a day that are plant strong. And then for me, it's family time. Right. So one That's of the things right. that we've started to do, and I've talked about this on the podcast, is we've really made a concerted effort to have dinner around the dinner table. 
And that just totally feeds my soul. It, I love every, every member of our family being able to get some talking time. You know, we go around the table and we do, you know, uh, rose and thorn, you know, so what was the greatest part of your day and what was the hardest part of your day? And it's just become a great little um, daily tradition that we've started. And we started it like six months ago. That's wonderful. No, I mean, again, like this stuff matters. You know, it's not just that you feel it and your kids feel it. We have scientific data showing how important this is, showing in terms of, you know, resiliency for kids, lower levels of mental health issues, fewer infections. Mm -hmm. I mean, it, it's really mm -hmm. powerful stuff. And um, yeah, that's great. So yours are then dirt, sweat, fam. So I'm <laughs> yeah. dirt, sweat, veg or dirt, sweat, fam. You may even be fam, dirt, sweat. I, 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 yeah. <laughs> I think you're right. Yeah. Uh, um, Beautiful. So I love reading people's acknowledgments, right? And I read your acknowledgement in the antiviral guides. And I love the way your husband, Eric, basically gave you permission or asked you to like do what you love, run in the woods and write books. And let me look at this. This is your, your fourth book, right? Yeah. Fourth book, yeah. the antiviral gut. And and in, in reading that acknowledgement, I realize, you know, what a lift it was, how many people were involved in bringing this out into the universe. And this to me is, especially where we are now in 2022, you know, kind of coming off of, of COVID and knowing that unfortunately, because of how we are living now in this world, there's going to be more and more of these kind of viruses coming our way. And I think that Literally, everybody should grab a copy, read this, and do everything you can to protect yourselves from the next, you know, <laughs> the next yeah. one that's headed our way or the ones that are just out there. Um, the and, 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 you know, they're not I, going away. Yeah. And I feel like I have been, I followed almost all of your, your protocols here in this book. And I feel like I can't even remember in 10 years how many times I've been sick. I came down with COVID. I mean, I got a bashing headache yeah. uh, for about three days. And then I was like, fine. And you go and in the book, you talk about this long haul mm -hmm. that is very to me. Oh, that is so scary. And how it's it predominantly affects women. And then there's like six different kind of attributes also that help increase your, your likelihood of that. I don't know if we want to continue to but well what we've i mean what i'll say is that you know i i have great empathy for anybody who comes down with this and yeah. you know everything that i say it's i mean nothing is about blaming anybody for what has befallen them it's all about empowering them to improve from it but we just in the last month we've had two really important studies that show that pre-existing illness is a main risk factor yeah. for long health symptoms in children and in adults Right. And that, for example, a lot of the uh, mental health symptoms that we've seen with long COVID, again, if they're built on a platform of pre-existing illness. And so the way to not have long COVID is to not get COVID at all, for sure. But the next best thing is to make sure that you, your foundation, both your physical and your mental health, is as good as it can be, right? Mm -hmm. And that's, that's something that we can be working towards all the time. And with simple things like what you described, the beautiful sitting down together 
at, at a dinner table to eat with your family or with friends, with simple, inexpensive things, going outside, breathing, these things, you know, we don't need, like, sometimes we need complicated medications, but most of the time we don't um, to, to really put these things into effect. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, Robin, I know maybe a handful of people in my life that haven't come down with COVID, literally like a, one handful. Yeah. And so I think most people have, have come across it. And I think if you're, unless you're like hiding at home, if you're out there living, you're, you've probably exposed yourself to it. So again, to me, following the protocols that you suggest in the antiviral gut is just, it's so important. The other thing I want to say in reading your, your acknowledgement, and I hope you're keeping your promise now to your daughter, Sydney, is to catch up on movie nights because you had to skip a lot of those. Oh, yeah. I mean, she, they still in my family, they tease me because they're like, you only like weird foreign films where everyone dies, you know, and they want to watch like, you know, whatever the popular stuff is. And I'm like, want to watch something in Norwegian with subtitles where like set on an island and, you know, it's all gloom and doom. Um, so I, I think I have slightly different tastes, but I've definitely, we found some good stuff that we all, yeah. that we all watch together. And um, yeah, it's been, it's been great just having a little more time for that, for sure. I, I, I have to say, Rip, you know, just to, it, it is really, I, I, I have a, you know, we have a couple of doctors in the family, like like in your family, my dad, who's I think around your dad's age, if not exactly. Um, my dad was born in 1939, 35, sorry. My mom's 39. So yeah. he's, he's been around a while. He's a retired surgeon, like your dad. Um, and my brother's also a spine surgeon and I'm a gastroenterologist. And to be able to share something, to feel like you have something valuable that can help people and you get a chance to put it out in the world. So I'm really grateful to my team at Penguin Random House at Avery. I'm really grateful to you and other folks have had me on the show because I get, you know, I get a megaphone, like the book mm -hmm. is one, but really being, being on the podcast is another and to really, to get people excited about what they can do, right. For that's easy, that's inexpensive, that you don't have to do all of it, but like, what can you do to be healthier? That is an incredible privilege and something that makes me super excited and yeah, well, happy about Yes. Well, you, well, well-deserved. And um, again, when, when does this officially launch out into the world? November 1st. November 1st, 2022. It's a good day. It's coming <laughs> um, right up. It is. Robin, before we leave, I have one last question for you. Okay. Why is your name spelled the way it is? It's uh, very—it's a very unique spelling of Robin. Rip. My parents are very normal, down-to-earth people. It is a mystery of my life, particularly with a last name like Chutkan, <laughs> that, you know, my dad is Indian. His family migrated from India. Well, didn't migrate. They, his, his, um, my grandfather was taken from India by the British and brought to Jamaica to work on the sugar sugarcane plantation mm -hmm. in a system of indentured labor that um, preceded slavery. So migrated is a very kind and generous term. But um, that name was changed, was probably Chutkani, and it was changed to Chutkan, C-H-U-T-K. And so that name 
is also tricky. And then Robin, how about just a R-O-B-I-N? I have no idea. If you met my parents, you'd be like, these are not the kind of people to come up with this weird <laughs> spelling, right? So it's like, okay, the last name is hard and the first name, but I'll tell you what, the only good thing about it is like, I'm easy to find, right? There's yes. nobody else with this weird spelling mm. and combination of names. But, and if people even get in the vicinity, I'm grateful. Like if people are like, Robbie Ann, Robine, like I, you know, I'm just, uh, I'm grateful if they come close. And for everybody listening that can't see, if you're not uh, watching this on YouTube, it's her name is spelled R O B Y N N E. <laughs> why? Why is right? Why not? Why not? Such a good question to end yeah. on. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Hey, Robin, it's been an absolute pleasure. Wow. You are such an absolute treasure trove of information that I I really I need to have you back on sometime soon because I feel like we just started to make a dent on all the information that's in this book. Let's do it in person. I'll come out to Austin. I've been looking for an excuse to come. I was in Dallas two weeks ago. I've been to other parts of Texas. I've never been to Austin. I hear it's so fantastic. It is. I know Eric would love to come. Like, let's regroup in Austin. All right. I, w- I, w- I would love that. Um, all right, Robin, enjoy uh, DC and all the best with the book. Thank you so much. Thanks so much right. for having me on. Robin's new book, The Antiviral Gut, is out now. And we'll be sure to put a link in the show notes of this episode. It really is a manual for your body with a gut-centric view and by focusing on both your internal and external health and environment, you can boost your immunity, improve your overall health and well-being and minimize the risk for serious viruses. And the absolute best way of doing this, by keeping it, you know it, plant strong. Thanks so much for listening. The Plant Strong Podcast team includes Carrie Barrett, Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, and Wade Clark. This season is dedicated to all of those courageous truth seekers who weren't afraid to look through the lens with clear vision and hold firm to a higher truth. Most notably, my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Anne Cryle Esselstyn. Thanks for listening.